Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal. This is Global Reboot. Welcome to the show. When you think about the patriarchy, you probably come to it with at least some assumptions. Maybe they're about the physical differences between the sexes. Maybe they're about genetics. Maybe they're cultural or religious. Well, there's a strong chance that your assumptions could be wrong. Angela Saini is a British science journalist and the author of The Patriarchs. It's a superb book in which she examines not just how patriarchies were created, but she also goes to the roots of our flawed assumptions behind why society is the way it is. If you follow her all the way to her conclusions, you leave realizing that the world really could be quite different. It's been a while since I learned so much from one book and one person. So, without teasing it any further, it is time to reboot the patriarchy. Here's Angela Saini. Let's dive in. Angela Saini, welcome to Global Reboot. Thank you so much for having me. So, right at the start of your excellent book, you have this section where you're at the San Diego Zoo and you're exploring how colonies of apes are always led by females and not males. Talk to us about that. Well, a particular kind of ape. And the reason that's important is because for so long, scientists in trying to understand the evolutionary roots of gendered behavior and power would look to other primate species as a guide. So they would look at chimpanzees. And of course, here we have a species that is male-dominated, in which the males can be quite vicious and violent towards each other and to other females. It was only much later that work was done on bonobos, um, which are one of the two species closest to humans genetically. And it turned out that this species was actually completely different. They are matriarchal, very clearly matriarchal. So when I was at the San Diego Zoo, for instance, I'd just arrived there and one of the older females had just quite viciously attacked one of the younger males so badly that he seemed to be cowering to one side, afraid that it might happen again. And the reason for this is that um, males generally gain protection, access to food, access to females through their mothers. And this younger male had been nursery reared, so he didn't have any of that protection anymore. But this is all important. The point of all this is to remind the reader that we shouldn't jump to biological conclusions when we're thinking about male domination in our own species. Mm. And so just lingering on bonobo apes a little bit more, I mean, how does size uh, play into this? How does physical strength play into this? You know, when I bring up the issue of male domination in humans, people often think that um, the reason that men tend to have more power in human societies is because they're on average slightly bigger. But the fact is that among bonobos, the males are still slightly bigger and yet they do not 
hold the authority. It's the older females that hold authority. And, you know, when we think about this more carefully, even in our own species, that makes sense because even among us, we know that our leaders, our world leaders or local leaders are very rarely the biggest or the strongest people. We don't elect mm. weightlifters or right. you know, Olympic athletes. They tend to be older. They tend to be people who can build powerful networks around them, who can build alliances. And actually, that's also true for primates. Why are animals important when it comes to examining the roots of patriarchy in human society? Well, on one level, you could say it doesn't really matter at all because we are a species apart and there's no reason to assume that our behavior would necessarily mirror any other species. But of course, when we see group inequality out in the world, it's very tempting to want to look for biological explanations for it. You know, what we see is a huge amount of variation among other animal species. But if we think about patriarchy just, you know, among humans, why would patriarchy necessarily be a universal condition when we know that among primates generally, and this is including chimpanzees, if patriarchy is the rule of the father, that's what it means, literally. Well, you know, it's very unusual among any animal species to see the father being the main kind of authority within the family structure. You know, kin relationships are almost always or very consistently organized through mothers and their offspring rather than fathers and their offspring. You know, and I was struck also in your book how you drew on so many different societies and countries. Um, and I lingered on India a little bit because, I mean, you described, for example, the goddess Kali, who's seen as this powerful figure associated with time and creation, power, death. Or there's the Nair sect in Kerala, the Kasis in Meghalaya. And the Nairs, for example, are not just matriarchal, but also matrilineal in nature. And I was wondering, what explains these differences and why these groups are so different from other more patriarchal aspects of India? Yeah, I was, of course, fascinated by India. I've lived there. That's where my family uh, emigrated from. And it was interesting when I did live and work there in Delhi, so this is in North India, it felt like not the best place in the world to be a woman, shall I say. It was, it was very, very hard, especially as a woman right. on her own when I first lived there. Um, and people would con you know, constantly tell me it's not like this in the South. It's very different in mm. Southern India. And that is true to a very large extent. And some of that legacy is attributed to Kerala, uh, southern Indian state of Kerala, in which there was a very powerful matrilineal royal family, the Nairas and the kingdom of Travancore, that encouraged women to be very well educated. Authority and property was passed through the female line. Everybody lived in these big, beautiful, extended households, Taravads, in which the eldest female was the greatest authority in that house. That's not to say that men didn't also share power. They did. Usually the brother, so the uncle in the family, would share power. And these matrilineal societies are far more common than we realize. Anthropologists have documented at least 160 around the world, right across mm. the Americas, an entire matrilineal belt across Africa and all across Asia. And the question we don't often ask is, why do they exist? 
The question we should be asking is, why is patriarchy so widespread? It completely stands to reason that humans would land on many different ways of organizing themselves. Why is this particularly skewed and unfair system of male domination so common in different parts of the world when we know that throughout history, and certainly the further back you go into history, we see a huge, a much greater degree of social variation? So let me put that question to you. How did it come to be and why is it so dominant? I wish there was a simple answer to this question. And I was half hoping when I was doing my research that there would be one simple root cause or one simple point in time that I could point to or location. And there really isn't because social change doesn't happen that way. Of course, it happens gradually, often not just through violence, but through cultural change, which takes a very long time to seep into how we behave. But what we can do is debunk some of the myths that we have. So, for example, we can debunk the biological myth because the further back you go into history, you find that there are egalitarian societies, certainly in the Neolithic. For example, at Chatelhuyuk, which is a settlement that was occupied around 9,000 years ago in southern Anatolia, so this is in Turkey, just on the border with Syria, here is a place in which we don't see really any differences in how men and women lived. There may have been other social hierarchies, but there certainly wasn't a gender hierarchy. We can also discount agriculture as a turning point because the historical data shows us that we have agriculture for a very long time before we see any signs in the archaeological record of gender depression. But where we can, I think, start to pin it down more firmly is with the rise of the state. So this is well after, for example, Chatelhuyuk, between 5,000 and 7,000 years ago, when the first big states were emerging in regions like ancient Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. And the reason that you start to see these first very gradual roots of gender depression is because the elites who were constructing these very early states, were obsessed with population. They had to be. You know, how do Mm. we get people to stay in our states? Which is not a question we think about these days because the world is all divided up into modern states and we become citizens almost automatically as soon as we're born. But that wasn't the case then. You know, these are societies that people could quite easily leave if they wanted to. They could go and be hunter-gatherers elsewhere. They didn't have to stay and be citizens of a state. So the state was obsessed with population. And of course, because you need people, you need people who are not just there, but also loyal to the state, willing to work for the state and produce a surplus for those at the top, that translates into an interest in what happens in the family, because the family is the unit of reproduction, of producing more people. Over time, over many thousands of years, you start to see in the record then pressure start to fall on young women to have as many children as possible, so more children than they would otherwise, and pressure starts to fall on young men, because they're not giving birth to those children, to be available to fight and give up their lives, if necessary, for the state. So those twin preoccupations, those twin obsessions, birth rates and defence, really become the hallmarks of the early patriarchal state. 
I found that part of the book just fascinating. I mean, um, listeners of this podcast know that I edit foreign policy, and it strikes me that so much of the literature about nations and nationhood is often defined by things like defense or nationalism and so many other ways of defining how a state comes to be, whether it's ethnicity or race or religion. But I thought the way in which you described um, the role of gender and the obsession with population, this is new in that discourse. I don't know why it should be new, because we can see it even in modern day states. We can see the ways in which um, those preoccupations remain. I mean, just to take Russia as an example, Russia, which under Putin really has become the archetypal patriarchal state with him as the patriarch. Mm. Misogynists all over the world look up to Putin for exactly this reason. Um, And here we see a country in which there is an intense concern now that lives are being lost because of the Ukraine invasion. Young people do not want to fight. They are fleeing conscription in large numbers. Last year, the Russian government introduced a state honour for women who have more than 10 children, the mother heroine medal. So for any woman who has that many children, which I don't know how, you know, I would need more than a medal to have 10 children. But here is the state reinforcing this idea that you are serving your country when you have as many kids as possible. And at the same time, just this year, the government also ran an advertising campaign because, like I said, all these young men are fleeing conscription, in which the slogan was, be a man. You know, if you enlist, if you fight for your country, then that is our definition of masculinity. So those gendered, deeply gendered concerns, which have their roots thousands of years ago in the early you know, first emerging patriarchal state, I think still translates so clearly in the concerns of modern day patriarchal states. One thing that struck me as really sort of nuanced and interesting in how you see um, the patriarchy is that this isn't about East or West or North and South. However you sort of carve up the world in every part of the world, it seems like there have been matriarchies as well as patriarchies. So it's not culture necessarily, nor religion, that seems to be the determining cause of the creation of patriarchies or the world as it is today. You're exactly right. It's much more subtle than that. The way that social change happens is not ever because of one factor. And the way we can track this, I think, most fruitfully is by looking at modern societies, so within living memory societies, that have transitioned from matriliney into patriarchy. So the Nairs of Kerala are a very good example because, like I said, here is a society that was very much focused around the authority of women, in which women had a lot of sexual agency. And these aren't tribal societies or hunter-gatherers. Like I said, these are very wealthy, influential royal society But what happened with uh, British colonialism in the 19th century and the arrival of Christian missionaries is that they were shocked by this Mm. um, and they didn't know how to, uh, you know, translate that into their worldview. Mm. So tragically, what happened over the course of the 19th and early 20th century was that British judges and Christian missionaries would slowly try to convince local people that they're customs were backwards, 
that it was completely inappropriate for a woman to not have one single husband. Um, it was wrong for a woman to have so much authority or power or property. They wouldn't do trade with women. They would only trade with men. And this is a story repeated all over the world as a result of European colonialism. But for the Nairs in particular, that had an effect. It didn't have to be done through violence. It was done through tiny bits of legislative change over many, many decades, changing how people thought about themselves, how they imagined themselves, to the point where it took until 1976, so this is after the British had left India, for the Kerala legislature to ban matrilineal altogether and insist that if people wanted to be married and they wanted to live in modern India, then they had to follow these patriarchal norms that you see in the rest of India. Um, so it happened very gradually. It changed how people thought about themselves. Mm. And of course, the British introduced so many other things. I mean, prudishness, um, mores about sex, things like the petticoat and the bra. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, across India, people just saw very differently. And then with the advent of colonization, just created this sea change across the country. I think this is one of the problems when we imagine gender equality these days. Even in the feminist literature, sometimes there is this implicit assumption that gender equality is somehow a modern Western invention, mm. that Europe came up with it and now we are all reaping the benefits. And it was never like that. These are ideas that have had to have been imposed spread, and not just by Europeans, other empires and other powerful states also exported these ideas. And religion, religion has been a big vehicle for patriarchal beliefs. Among the Nairas in Kerala, we have, because this is such a recent history, we have these beautiful memoirs. There's one memoir in which a man recounts living in one of these big, beautiful Taravads and how the head of the household, you know, the oldest woman in the household, she would never wear anything above the waist. She was naked above the waist. And this wasn't considered at all inappropriate or wrong. It was just accepted. This is how we dress. This is fine. Um, so this idea, these kind of moral ideas about what is okay and what isn't okay, I think, were never there universally to begin with. So let's move to the reboot part of this conversation. And this is a big question, and I suppose we'll go at it uh, in a variety of ways. But how does one begin to reboot the world so we don't have patriarchies dominating everything? I think we're already doing it to a large degree. If you take the very long view, which of course I'm doing because I'm starting with the Neolithic and going up to the present, then it is quite astounding how much at least legal change there has been um, around the way that states are structured and the way that they think about gender over the last couple of hundred years. It wasn't that long ago that right across Europe, for instance, it was assumed legally in you know the way that states were organized that wives were the property of their husbands, that they had no right to their own earnings, that a husband could stop his wife from working if he wanted to because he controlled her labor, that even her children were not her own, that if she left her husband, then her children belonged to him. Um, so, so much of that change, that political change, I think is quite revolutionary. It's the 
cultural change, the mental change in how we think about ourselves that I think takes much longer. And this comes down to that fundamental question of what is better, revolution or reform? How do we get the society that we want? And unfortunately, at least you know, over the last century or so, revolutions have tended not to deliver that huge whole-scale gender revolution. But reform has certainly worked. It's slow and it's painful because it's slow. We don't want to have to wait, but we are already creating the society that we want. So I tend to agree with you in general across a range of issues that reform tends to deliver longer-lasting change than revolution. But where do policymakers fit into this? So if you are a government and you want to foster more of a reboot when it comes to the patriarchy, how do you begin to do that? How do people in power do that? Well, the challenge is bringing everyone along with you. Um, and we see this in the Soviet Union. Here was, in modern times, perhaps the biggest attempt to smash the patriarchy that has happened in any state. We don't talk about this, but the Soviet Union was the first state to legalize abortion. That was in 1920. And the reason they did that was because Lenin was very much committed to this idea that women's rights, women's liberation should be sewn into the project, the Soviet Union project. Now, when Stalin came into power, and birth rates began to fall because they will fall if you give women more rights and you educate them more, they have fewer children. We see that all over the world. So he reversed that and made abortion criminal again. And then later it was, it was legalized again. So we have to understand that push and pull, the needs of the state to have as many people as possible, to have labor as accessible and free as possible. And when I say labor, I don't just mean labor outside the home. I mean very specifically labor inside the home, the caring work, all the work that we need to get done in order to just keep functioning. And of course, within the patriarchal state, that is done for free by, by women because they're essentially their labor belongs to their husbands. So that fundamental reset, how do we rethink labor? How do we rethink our need for large populations to sustain the states that we have, to sustain growth and the standards of living that we have, that fundamental dilemma, I think, hasn't been fully solved. Well, and it could begin with quantifying and even accepting that women end up doing so much labor at home, but that never gets accounted for in GDP or in how countries think about labor or pay or employment. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there have been calculations done. Feminist economists have looked at this and asked themselves, okay, if we were to put a monetary value on all this unpaid labor, what would it be? And of course, it's many trillions. In a state like the US, it would drive the state bankrupt in a second if the government were to start paying for all this unpaid labor. And so we continue with it. We continue with this system, right. which is deeply unfair. Now, are there answers to it? Are there solutions to it? Of course, the Soviet Union's answer was to say, well, everybody works and standards of living won't be high for everyone. In fact, most people will feel poor, but at least everybody works and everybody is free. You know, divorce rates were much higher because no woman felt she had to stay in an unhappy marriage or a marriage that didn't work for her because she had her own work. She had her own source of income, so she could do that. Mm. The state also supplied childcare that was very cheap. 
there were public laundries in some countries. So you could just take your linens to the public laundry and it would be done for a very low cost. And even food. You know, I interviewed one person, uh, a Hungarian gender scholar, who grew up in the 1980s. And she told me that it wasn't until she went to North America that she saw housewives cooking dinner at home. Because when she was growing up, they would all eat in the school canteen or in the factory canteens at work. And they would bring home a little bit of food from there and eat that in the evening. So her parents didn't need to cook. So it was possible then to do this. The problem was that it happened so quickly and in such an authoritarian, devastating way that, of course, it didn't carry people along. But so many of the things that states provide now are soft socialism. Policymakers have learned from that. You know, earlier in this interview, you said that the earliest states were obsessed with population and that that was sort of a turning point in leading to the creation of a patriarchy. And it strikes me that the world today looks so different. I mean, there are many countries that have the opposite problem. They have uh, more people than they would have expected, you know, a few decades ago. And the world's population is going to peak, then begin to decline. And indeed, some countries are already seeing declining populations, China most notably this year. Do you think that if the obsession with more population is gone then does that change how people and people in power think about gender and sex? Yes, possibly. And it is already happening. Um, You can see how the balance of power changes when birth rates change. So just to take China as an example, here is a state that has reversed its one-child policy because, as you say, birth rates have been falling. Women still don't want to have that many children. So there have been efforts recently on the part of Chinese officials to come up with clever ideas to encourage women to have more children. Because we have to remember that rising population is not just a product of rising birth rates. It's also a product of us living so much longer that we are, you know, we live into old age in so many countries. So that demographic change is a problematic one because those much older people, the elderly people, aren't working. Um, So in China... Just for instance, one Chinese official came up with the idea of um, giving college students a week off to fall in love and have more children. Um, yeah, that all these so very creative, <laughs> really creative ideas. So it's still a concern, I think. But what's also interesting in China is because of the one child policy, a lot of investment has gone into daughters that wouldn't have gone into them otherwise. So, for instance, we see women leveraging that power that they now have within their families. And because of sex-selective abortions and female feticide, there's no doubt that gender ratios are still very skewed in parts of Asia. Um, There are some pockets of the country in which women are now insisting that when they get married, they will not move to live with their husbands, that their husbands have to come and live with them. So they have become almost like the son in their families, if you want to think about it in gender terms. So they are subverting these old patriarchal norms because of the birth rate issue. You know, it strikes me that thinking about a patriarchy versus a matriarchy is a very sort of binary view of (laughs) the world um, and how we organize when in fact, patriarchies don't have to be absolute patriarchies and nor do matriarchies have to be absolute matriarchies. There's, There's an in between. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we do get stuck in this dichotomy sometimes. I wonder, I'm a science writer, and I do wonder sometimes if it's a product of the European Enlightenment style of framing the world, that it's, you know, man versus woman, black versus white. One of the very earliest assumptions at the birth of modern Western science, so this is 17th century science, was that women were almost a breed apart from men, hmm. that we were so utterly different in every way that we didn't even have a place in universities, that we weren't capable of the same intellectual effort as men, which is why all the scientific academies of Europe as a matter of course, didn't admit women as members. It, mm. it was just assumed they, would, they wouldn't need to. And that didn't change remarkably until the middle of the 20th century. So the Royal Society, which is the Scientific Academy of the UK, the, you know, one of the most influential in the world, didn't admit women as members until 1945. So that idea of kind of binary opposites, I think, still casts a long shadow over the way modern-day scholars think about human difference. And you're right that that is not culturally universal. There are many uh, knowledge systems around the world that don't think that way, that have room for multiplicity and room for nuance and change even within a person's lifetime. But this idea that it can only be one or the other, that either men have all the power or women have all the power, actually it's a very simplistic and unuseful way of thinking about how we could organize ourselves. Now, much of sort of how we also think about patriarchies is about the exertion of power. And I wonder how much of this is conscious versus inertia. And the reason why I ask this question is, um, you know, I had an economics professor once who was trying to explain to me, I think I was late for a class, and he was trying to explain to me that, you know, a lot of how we think about whether to show up on time for something is about whether we think everyone else is going to show up on time. So if you're meeting a friend in New Delhi, this is a big generalization, but I'm going to do it because I've lived in New Delhi. And, you know, it would be in your, um, how should I put it, economic interest to show up 10 minutes late because you must assume <laughs> that your friend will show up 10 minutes late. Um, this is my long way of posing to you a question about if we imagine change, if we imagine rebooting, some of that is just rebooting the inertia that exists right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and in so many different ways, we kind of blindly, without thinking about it, play out patriarchal norms in our everyday life and find them completely innocent. You know, for example... It is very common for women to take their husband's name after they get married. Mm -hmm. So many women do that. Women in my family have done that. And we don't think of it as a, as a deeply patriarchal act necessarily. Mm. But it, of course, has its roots in this idea that once you get married, you are the property of your husband. That is why we have this tradition of women being given away by their fathers to their husbands and then adopting their husband's name. It's that movement of control, that movement of power from one man to another. Um, and yet we carry on, you know, we just do it because they've become custom or habit or tradition and we become attached to them. You know, there's a devastating example of an anthropologist who uh, was in a community in which the elders of the society were told, please, can you stop 
and the practice of FGM, female genital mutilation, among your girls. It's so damaging. It causes uh, psychological as well as physical trauma. And the elders said, yeah, that's fine. We will do that. Um, and the, it was the young women themselves who turned mm. around and said, if you stop cutting us, we will do it ourselves. So just imagine wow. the, you know, the the devastating power of believing that your culture is so important to you that you will allow it to commit abuses against you because it means more to you than anything else. And in fact, all of us live in that state much of the time. Mm. We don't think about it this way, but many of us play out these ideas, these rituals, these traditions, because they matter to us more than necessarily having a society in which gender doesn't matter. Here's to more imagination and a lot of other change in the world. Angela Saini, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Angela Saini, the author of The Patriarchs and several other excellent books. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Dan Efron. Next week, Andy Kim. He is the Democratic representative in Congress from New Jersey's 3rd District. He also happens to be a member of the all-important Select China Committee in Congress. Kim's an old foreign policy hand and has ideas not just on how to reboot America's China policy, but also how to rethink American foreign policy in general. You will not want to miss this. Thanks for listening. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.